Hi, this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Richard Rosenfeld. He is an emeritus professor of criminology at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. His research interests include the social sources of violent crime, crime statistics, and crime control policy. His current research focuses on explaining U.S. crime trends. Hello, Rick. Thank you for being on today. Hello, Mitch. Thanks for inviting me. So the reason I reached out to you was because, you know, I was seeing your name show up in all these different magazine and articles and the web and what have you about about how what happens in your downtown when it comes to crime is going to start branching out to other places. And I live downtown St. Louis. And since I moved here, it's been it's been kind of wild west. So I was really interested to talk to you to see about what is going on out there these days. Uh, well, what's going on? Uh, what's going on in St. Louis right now is also going on in many other cities across the country. Uh, beginning, uh, really uh, pinpointing the beginning is not all that difficult. Uh, beginning at the, the end of May and through June and indeed through the summer, a number of cities, including St. Louis, have seen pretty significant increases in uh, violent crime rates. And uh, and so St. Louis is uh, in, in the company of uh, lots and lots of places across the country. The increase in violent crime uh, in most of the places really began in the last week of May. And that was the week that uh, George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. And immediately thereafter, protests uh, began uh, and became quite widespread across the country. Uh, as your viewers know, protest activity was widespread in the St. Louis area. Um, and so that has led to speculation about the connection between the protests against police violence and police misconduct and violent crime. Um, one And uh, speculation is the right word for that connection. I don't think okay. anyone knows for sure uh, uh, just how the protest activity has come to influence violent crime rates. One thing we do know, however, is that uh, the violent crime is not due to uh, the protesters themselves. There was some violence in the initial protests uh, back in June, uh, and it persisted to some degree in a few places, Portland, Oregon. Uh, but by and large, the, violence, uh, the spike in violence we've seen is a spike in the community, in, in the city. And that's okay. been the case in St. Louis. I'll just, uh, one concluding note on that is that we're not seeing violence spread into communities within cities, and this would include our own city of St. Louis, where violence has traditionally been uh, very, very low. What we're seeing is that violence is uh, uh, on the uptick in those communities in cities, including St. Louis, that have traditionally had high levels of violence, and those tend to be disadvantaged communities of color. Right, right. So, and 
you know, so living downtown, I mean, and, and it was a last Saturday night. I was like, what is going on? There were sirens all night long. Um, helicopters with their spotlights out. Um, my daughter had had actually, there was a, she called 911 because there was a gentleman slumped over in his car, you know, that she saw and had called 911 about that. And she said she had to wait seven minutes for 911 to pick up, which surprised me. I, I in, in my head, I never thought you would be on hold with 911. Yeah, uh, that's certainly not good news. Um, and I haven't heard other stories, though I suspect your daughter is not alone in people having to wait uh, for an extended period of time just to make contact with 911. I suspect that's because of uh, the first uh, kind of observation you made uh, that uh, on that Saturday evening, things were very, very active, lots of people right. calling, and that generated delays. Was your daughter finally able to make contact? She was. Um, and, you know, what, what happened was she had been waiting with a, she was at a stoplight, and the gentleman was not proceeding forward, and she thought maybe he was preoccupied on his phone or something. And so she waited, and then she said the next stoplight came up, and she went, she, she, and he just sat there at a green light and she was like, okay. And so she went, she went to go around him and looked and noticed he was slumped over and then called 911. Now, luckily the 911 operator had actually said, now, did you get out and check on him? And she was like, did you want me to? And she went, no, 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 I didn't want you to. That was, you did the right thing. Where was it? We'll send somebody out there. But it just surprised me. I was really taken aback by her being on hold for that long. Well, um, so for you and your neighbors downtown, uh, um, I have a suggestion. It's not a remedy, uh, but uh, uh, Captain Ren Renee Creesman is uh, the captain of uh, uh, District 4, which is the okay. downtown police district. And uh, I know Renee. Uh, she's a good person and a responsive police officer, and uh, contact her and let her know that in your experience, crime or crime-related problems like the one your daughter encountered uh, seem to be on the increase. Are they, in fact, according to Renee's information, uh, what types of crimes are increasing? And um, how have the police changed their response to check the crime increase? Uh, I think she needs to hear that. So, so uh, I'm not familiar with who your older person is, uh, but uh, I suspect this won't be the first call your alderman has received about crime downtown. Right. And do you have any suggestions? Like, um, I'm on something called Lookout St. Louis you know, which like lets you know when a crime has been committed in your area or the, you know, but it doesn't give me a lot of, I mean, it just still say suspicious person. Yeah. And I'm, that doesn't, I'm like, for how, why were they suspicious? What were they doing? Do, do you have an identity? <laughs> is there something that I can, you know, like just suspicious person is not going to be very helpful. That, believe it or not, is a more or less official crime 
classification. Often the police don't know much more than suspicious person. They'll receive a report of a okay. suspicious person. Now, that person may be suspicious only because pre- people in the neighborhood never saw that person before in the neighborhood, but he or she is a fully innocent you know, person just passing through. Or it could be uh, someone who's suspicious because they're up to no good. Right, um, right. And often the police, at least at the point they received the call, don't don't know. And there are a whole batch of calls then that get converted to these suspicious person reports that in turn uh, uh, fall in, you know, uh, uh, become known to uh, uh, the service that you you receive. Uh, I'm guessing that that uh, service relies on the uh, mapping capabilities that uh, the St. Louis City Police Department has, and anyone can go up on the St. Louis uh, Metropolitan Police Department's website, uh, go to Crime Statistics, and there is a facility there that allows you to pinpoint an area such as your own, or pinpoint an address such as your address, and it will then provide for you within the last, uh, uh, I think it certainly the last 24 hours going back uh, weeks to perhaps a period of months, uh, the number and types of crimes that have occurred within, you can specify the distance from your address, make it uh, you know, half a mile or a quarter mile, however you want to do that. Um, so what you're doing is really probably using the facility that the service you already received uses. It's just doing it for you. Uh, but you could look at other addresses as well, uh, address of family and friends and so on. Interesting. Um, you know, it can be cold comfort in a way because you'll see your screen populate very quickly. But each type of offense is color-coded. And one more or less comforting note will be the large majority of incidents are relatively minor, though not necessarily minor to uh, the individuals uh, who might be involved. Um, But you're not going to see many shootings, uh, other serious assaults or homicides, but you will see some. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting on... Mondays, it seems like I I find out like here's what happened over in St. Louis in the week, and I'm like, oh my goodness gracious! Now, of course, the areas, the streets they're talking about, I don't really see Washington Avenue so much, um, but it it is so distressing and it's it's so sad. It you know it's I mean, do you have any answers, any thoughts, any any ideas on here are some things that would make this better? Ah, well, staying in relatively frequent communication with the police department through Captain Creaseman um, um, and uh, also uh, through your city alderman uh, is a good idea. Uh, Like everyone else, the police respond to pressure. And in this case, we're talking about very constructive pressure. And the more they hear from citizens about particular problems who live in particular areas, the more likely they are to respond. Um, I don't know whether your 
community, whether that downtown community has something like a neighborhood watch program. Mm -hmm. Um, But if it does uh, become more familiar with its activities, needless to say, I hope needless to say, be, you know, St. Louis is a city. Uh, You live in an area of the city that is actually um, quite active. Right. Yes. And dense. There's a lot of people here. Yes. And that's a good thing. Uh, businesses, you know, beginning in the 90s and through the present, uh, allowing for the COVID slowdown, uh, businesses have thrived along Washington Avenue and Locust and and uh, related areas. And that's a good thing. That brings lots of people to the area, however. Right. Uh, a lot of the clubs bring lots of young people in the area. And young people uh, can engage in mischief, let's hope mainly it's just mischief. Uh, But, you know, where crowds gather, uh, people who are up to more than just mischief also are attracted because there are targets of opportunity there. Uh, Young people or or others who uh, are staggering down the street after the bars close uh, become targets for street robbers. And so one has to be careful at night, like in any big city. Be very careful at night. Don't stagger when you're out on the streets. Um, If you can, walk in the company of others. Um, But, you know, those are the kind of safety tips that um, uh, should be very familiar to to your viewers. Um, That plus staying in touch with the police and making contact with community organizations like Neighborhood Watch, that may not be the name of the organization in your community. Coming to know the private security who operate in your community is also important. And when you see a private security officer on the street sitting in his or her car, go up, introduce yourself, ask how often they're there, where they are, when, uh, become familiar. And, and the same would go for the public police officers when they're on duty in your area. Come to know them. Now, their you know, personnel will switch, um, but it's not difficult to come to know the officers. Uh, and as they come to know you, uh, they're more willing to share information. Uh, and, okay. uh, you know, uh, there's no... There's no secret sauce here. There's no magic solution. But those right. are the kinds of things to um, to do to, uh, if nothing else, uh, keep your own sanity about what's happening in your community. Stay in yes. touch with people who pay attention to those things. And be really aware and do not leave anything in your car. <laughs> that is a big one in St. Louis that, you know, people, your car is going to get broken into if you're parked overnight and you have things out in your car. Yeah, just remember that. It's amazing. I think people just don't because you hear about people like somebody broke into my car and they got my, and I'm thinking, well, was it out where everybody could see it? Don't, don't show it. Anybody you know. who lives in a big city. These are tips not just for St. Louisans who happen to live downtown. Anybody who lives in a big city, and in particular in an area that's as active as yours, um, should know these tips by heart. They should be part of your central, your urban central nervous system. Exactly. Oh, I like that. 
I like that urban central nervous system. Okay, I'm working mine. So one of the things I read about that I also wanted to ask about was what is called the Ferguson effect. Yeah. Okay, well, five years ago, after Michael Brown was killed by a police officer in Ferguson, uh, widespread protests occurred, not just in our area, but across the country, not unlike what's happened during the past summer after George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. And so uh, what we saw five years ago, uh, as we've seen this summer, is that crime rates, violent crime rates in particular, spiked after uh, the Michael Brown killing, but also after incidents, comparable incidents in Milwaukee, in Chicago, in Baltimore, and elsewhere. Not all of which involved killings by the police, but involved controversial uh, use of force incidents. Uh, so we, we saw a violent crime spike then. Uh, and the term Ferguson effect was first coined by our then police chief, Sam uh, Dotson. And what he referred to by the Ferguson effect was uh, uh, a kind of twofold. On the one hand, police were being redeployed from their normal patrol assignments to deal with protest demonstrations. And that left some that left many communities in the city under police compared to the policing they would have received prior to the protests. And uh, in the chief's mind, that contributed to a spike in crime. But it also then changed community dynamics to some degree. Uh, he suggested that uh, people in the community, but in particular people in certain communities who were up to no good, uh, became emboldened as a result of the protests, either because they thought people in their area uh, uh, were so angry with the police that they weren't going to call them, right? And so yeah, yeah. that uh, uh, was an incentive to commit crime, uh, or because uh, they too noticed reduced police presence and um, so it was sort of a combination of police and community response to the protests uh, that, uh, in Dodson's words, uh, led to a crime increase. Now, then the term went national, and it was used by commentators of all kinds to refer specifically to this idea that the police were, in a sense, willfully or voluntarily withdrawing from full engagement in their activities because of concern given the protests of police misconduct, concern about increased legal liability, concern that their identities or their families' identities might be spread all over social media, anger, frustration. So they were willfully pulling back. And that's really how the term was used at the time. And indeed, we now hear, and I think we're going to hear more of, something called the Minneapolis effect, which draws directly on the Ferguson effect notion of five years ago uh, and suggests, just as that one had, that the police, because of anger, frustration, concerns about legal liability, were drawing back and uh, 
not engaged in the kind of proactive activities that can help keep crime in check. So that's basically what the term meant. And I think we, we're not finished with it. It's uh, coming back uh, under a new label. So is that really what happens? They are willingly pulling back? Uh, there are anecdotes suggesting that some officers in some places are. But all okay. we have right now are anecdotes. Gotcha. Now, they can't be ignored. Um, but what we don't know is the scale of that sort of willful, whatever one wants to call it, dereliction of duty, willful but somewhat discretionary drawing back. You know, I'm not going to pay attention to the minor stuff, but I will respond to the more serious stuff. We don't know the scale of that. But here's what we do know. Police departments have been hit by the COVID um pandemic, like other every other aspect of our community. Right. And what that has meant is that um, uh, it's resulted in reduced police presence and police activity. Officers out on quarantine because they have the virus or because they've been in contact with someone, often a colleague who has the virus. And of those officers who remain on duty, they're subject to social distancing policies and requirements by the department or out of their own discretion, maintain social distance. That means reduced contact. And that means reduced activity of the sort that I was just describing that can help keep crime in check. Now, we do know the scale of that. <clears throat> That's measured by the St. Louis City Police Department. Uh, they measure what are called self-initiated activities. And they remain down considerably, even now you know, into, uh, well, into the month of October compared with last October at this time. And earlier on in the summer, early summer and late spring, uh, they were way, way down when uh, we were at the height of business closings and, um, you know, the beginning of, of the response to the pandemic. So um, we do know that there's been reduced police presence and activity uh, owing to COVID. What we don't know, uh, can't put a, a kind of comparable number on, is the degree to which police activity has been reduced, uh, if you will, voluntarily because of officer frustration, anger, concern about legal liability or related reasons. So is that part of your research now? Um, the response of the police, uh, not per se. My recent research activity has resulted in a couple of studies I conducted for the Council on Criminal Justice, which is a national crime and justice reform organization, um, uh, looking at crime changes in big cities across the country, including St. Louis. Um, <clears throat> uh, we went back to the beginning of, we went back several years, the beginning of 2017, and in our most recent study uh, uh, ended in the, at the end of August 2020, this year. We looked at crime rate changes during uh, that period compared with the past. And what we found was that increase in violent crime that I was describing 
And in nearly all of the cities, beginning in the last week of May, and that was the week George Floyd was killed, we also found, however, uh, a very uh, sustained drop in property crime. We're seeing the same thing in St. Louis. Uh, uh, That began with uh, the business closings and quarantines at the beginning of the pandemic. Prop, you know, the biggest category of property crime is larceny. Larceny are thefts unaccompanied by force, so they're not robberies. They don't involve breaking and entering, so they're not burglaries. Uh, they consist of shoplifting, uh, for example. And when the shops were closed, there was no shoplifting. Right, right. Residential burglary, though, also went down. People were at home because of quarantining, because their, uh, where they worked, those places were closed, and uh, burglars tend to avoid occupied households. So burglary, r- residential burglary rates went down. So it's a two kind of two-phase story. The attention, I think appropriately, appropriately so, has been devoted to the increase in violence. Violence is a more right. serious type of crime. But nobody wants to have their home burglarized or no. or their shops uh, lifted, if you will, um, and um, uh, or their purse stolen off the table if you're sitting outdoors at a cafe. You know, that's a larceny as well. Yeah. Um, so it's all important, but there's no question we want to make sure to focus on the uptick in violence. Recalling that we're all a little bit uh, less likely to be victimized by property crime. Right. Thanks, so have, interestingly enough, to COVID. <laughs> that is interesting. No, you, but it makes sense. You know, I guess I just never thought about it, but it completely makes sense. So I have this other question for you that I thought was really interesting about um, the whole idea of can we cure violence? And you talked about focused deterrence. Right. Okay, well, cure violence is actually a term that is used to describe a particular type of intervention that's designed to reduce violent crime. Focused deterrence is a different type of intervention. <coughs> um, just looking at the clock, no problem. Uh, and uh, so let me talk about both types of intervention. Uh, Cure Violence uh, is a public health-based strategy that began in Chicago and now is spread to other places, including our own city of St. Louis. There are now three, perhaps four, but uh, three uh, spots in the city uh, that the Cure Violence intervention has been implemented. And uh, my understanding is it will be uh, include a fourth. Uh, the city has literally devoted millions of dollars to this effort, scarce, needless to say, scarce uh, public dollars uh, to this effort. And what the effort involves is training people who live in a community, very familiar with the community, <coughs> excuse me, to, uh, if they're not already, Uh, doing so, monitoring violence, conflict situations in their community that could turn violent and and, or already violent situations that could invite retaliation. And then intervening in those disputes to prevent future violence. Um, It's it's 
uh, a strategy that appeals to many people because it doesn't directly involve the police um, and um, and because it's community based. Uh, it makes sense, you know, uh, but it's a tall order. Uh, I was going to say, very tall order. First of all, is... you have to have people who are very, very well trained so that they both know how to monitor, you know, conflicts occur all the time, every day in communities of all sorts. Right. Uh, one has to be able to select among those conflicts, those most likely to lead to violence uh, or select among those violent conflicts, those most likely to lead to retaliation or or other types of future violence. And then train to effectively intervene in disputes to prevent the future violence from occurring. Now, there's been some research on this effort in uh, other places. I would say it's something of a mixed bag. There's some favorable results, some showing not much of an impact. We'll see what happens in St. Louis. Uh, uh, that's something to keep an eye on, though. We've made a major commitment to that strategy, and we're, we're going to want to make sure if it's successful that we find out and if it's not successful that we find out so we can turn our attention to other strategies, one of which is the other one, focused deterrence. Yeah. <clears throat> this one does involve the police and other criminal justice uh, personnel, such as uh, prosecutors and judges and uh, juvenile uh, 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 justice officials um, and probation and parole officials and the U.S. attorney and, and it, the list can go on. And it involves uh, ministers, social service providers, uh, and those who provide other support services. And it's focused in the following sense. Uh, people are called into meetings, and those these are people who um, have, uh, because of their prior arrest history or their prior victimization history, who, who are at very high risk for violence in a particular community. Okay. As offenders, as victims, as both. And they are called into meetings. Uh, this has been done, by the way, in St. Louis. And uh, I, with a graduate student, evaluated it, and it turned out to be effective. And in any event, they're called into meetings, and they're a two-pronged message is delivered. The first message is kind of the stick message. We know who you are, clearly. <clears throat> Our eyes are on you, clearly. Uh, and if you b become involved in another incident involved uh, of violence, we're going to pull all available levers to take you off the street and not endanger your community any further. And then the carrot message is delivered, and they can be delivered in tandem, by the way. Mm -hmm. And the carrot message is, look, if you want out of this life, here are services and supports here are family members. Lots of family members often attend these meetings. Here are neighbors. Sometimes other community members will attend. Here, here's the local pastor. They all want to help. Uh, so if you need to finish high school, if you need to deal with a drug problem, if you need employment training or employment, 
here are services and supports that can help. The choice is yours. You know, there's a big focus here on taking control of your situation. And this research approach has received relatively consistent support in the research literature. And as I mentioned, we evaluated uh, this kind of program in St. Louis. What we found, what we were able to do is randomly, we worked with probation and parole. They wanted to do the program. And we said, great, how many people do you want to have involved? They said, well, way more than we have room for. Typically, the meetings are 25, 30 people, max. Okay. So we said, great. Send us a list and we'll randomly choose people to go to the meetings and people otherwise similar, the randomly chosen who don't. And we'll compare the results over time. We'll wait some months and see who's more likely to get arrested. And as it turns out, those who went to the meeting were less likely to get arrested than those who didn't. Now, it's surprising, it seems, that uh, a single meeting might have that effect. But recall that that single meeting uh, means meant that for many of the people there, once the meeting ended, they went over to the so- social support or services table, took information, and perhaps then followed up with the services. Now, that's one version. That's the dominant version of the approach. I'm a big fan of this approach, as you can probably tell. Well, I think it sounds amazing. I mean, it's like you're giving that person a support system. Yes. Now, it can be done on a one, one-on-one basis, too. Let's, uh, I'm assuming some school teachers or people who have been to school certainly are, are, are viewing. So uh, imagine the kids in school, um, and you might not have to imagine, maybe you were one of them who really needed extra attention. They were just falling through the cracks, either academically or behaviorally or both, right? And so they're two ways of dealing with that. One is to form a group and uh, administer remedial education to the group. You know, two-pronged message. We know who you are, and if it's a behavioral problem, look, uh, you know, we can't put up with this much longer. Right. But here are services and supports that we think will help. Or it can be done individually, tailored to that individual's particular problems, desires, and needs. And arguably, the individual approach, though uh, less efficient, you're not dealing with as many people at once, uh, could be more effective on a one-on-one basis. So the St. Louis Police Department does have a program that does that with high-risk folks. Uh, They're on probation or parole. They're visited by police officers in their homes, you know, and often there a family member or more will be there. Um, and once in the home, that two-pronged message is delivered. But now it's tailored to the individual's particular circumstances. So the officers find the officer finds out, ah, this person has got a drug problem. Everything else has got to be put to the side until that's dealt with. This person finished his GED but is having trouble getting a job. Let's see if we can use uh, uh, our contacts to provide some employment support and so forth. We're evaluating that program, again, through a, a randomized design where there are more people eligible that can be served by this program. And so some are randomly selected to participate, others are not. I should say, uh, however, uh, 
in full disclosure, that the number of case we want a lot of cases, so we have something substantial to analyze. And COVID just did a number on the program I because right. it's based on home visits. Uh, yes. And uh, it's picked back up a little bit, but we're well behind of the number of participants that we'd like to uh, we'd like to evaluate. So we'll see about that one. But you get a sense of what that approach exactly. is about. Uh, it's far less costly than the... Uh, violence interrupter approach, the so-called cure violence approach. Uh, That doesn't mean it's necessarily um, any more effective. Uh, We'll see what happens with cure violence. I would hope that everyone viewing this podcast uh, contacts the city of, contact your older person and say, tell me, give me the latest news you have on cure violence. Now it's almost certain that that's been affected by uh, by COVID as well. Right. right. Uh, but we really, really want to know how effective that's been. Uh, it's overseen by the city health department. Contact the city health department directly. Okay. Um, find out a lot of our tax dollars, and I speak as a city resident, as you are, a lot of our tax dollars have been devoted to this effort. We really, really need to find out if it's working. Interesting. Well, thank you for that information. So I know we don't have a lot more time, but I have like two fun questions. Can I ask you the two fun questions? I asked you my serious question. (laughs) Um, I was wondering if there are any fictional criminologists that you that you like or dislike? Oh, Sherlock Holmes. All right. Oh, there's no question. Your favorite. Uh, fictional criminologist other than Sherlock Holmes. No, it can be Sherlock Holmes. You it's Sherlock that. Holmes. <laughs> I love it. And then growing up as a kid, did you have a favorite Saturday morning cartoon? Yeah. Hmm. Not so much cartoon. I was more... Well, the Looney Tunes, yeah. And then a little later, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Although I don't think they were on Saturday mornings. They were on Sunday. I think they were, yeah, or after school or something. Right. But I was into uh, the serials that ran on Saturday mornings and also ran in the movie theaters in those days. So I was a huge Three Stooges fan. Actually, I'll have to admit I still am. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Johnny Mac Brown was a serial. Hopalong Cassidy, The Lone Ranger. I was into that stuff. Gotcha. Um, uh, actually, you might call them early kind of crime-related shows. Right. Well, exactly. That's why I wanted to know. I was like, I mean, did it all start from, you know, you had an interest that early, and it's been your passion ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Although I never knew I would become a criminologist until... You know, much later in life. I My PhD is in sociology, and um, up until the point I began thinking seriously about my dissertation, I wasn't all that interested in crime per se. Um, I became interested, though, for a couple of reasons. One is that my mother, who uh, at that point, she's since passed, uh, she lived uh, actually not very far from where I live right now in the central West End, and she gotten held up on the street a couple of times. She wasn't oh, hurt, but right. it, you know, it traumatized yeah, her. And that, shake I became interested in crime for that personal reason. I also, between the time I'd finished my exams but hadn't 
really begun my dissertation, <clears throat> I was out of graduate school for a while, and I ended up uh, getting a job teaching in a maximum security prison in upstate New York, where I was living. Uh, it was a college program. In those days, uh, prisoners could use Pell Grants to fund college. And so my almost literally my first teaching experience was teaching in a maximum security prison. Wow. And uh, that plus personal experience plus academic interests as well uh, made me decide, no, this is what I, I, I want to study this phenomenon. Wow. Well, I think you found the right path. Mm-hmm. Well, Rick, thank you. This has been fabulous. I really appreciate your time today and sharing all of this with us. Thank you, sir. And everyone who has uh, been listening out there, you're listening to Mishmash Podcast. Thank you and have a wonderful day. <laughs>